Welcome back to the macro trading floor. This episode is brought to you by public.com. You'll hear all about them later in the show, but for now, let's get into the episode, Alfonso. Yep. So this is Alf speaking, CEO and founder of the Macro Compass with me, as always, Mr. Steno. Yes. Uh, and I'm the CEO and founder of Steno Research. We've been ridiculed a bit over the past week, Alfonso, for bringing too many CEOs on the show now. But uh, <laughs> when we run our own little companies, then uh, <laughs> I guess it's, it's the title to use. <laughs> yeah, CEO of the basement, actually third floor for me of my house, together with my dog, trying to run some macro stuff. Yeah, that's what it is. I don't know for you. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the same here, but um, I guess when uh, when I say everyone and their dogs along something, it actually means something in your context. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's discuss a bit this macro, Andreas, because we are having some interesting uh, data to start the year with the first six weeks for sure. And uh, why don't we actually make a recap of what have been the most important macro data? And particularly, I know you have a theory about seasonal adjustments in general, let's say, and seasonal distortion. So please enlighten me. So the recap can be uh, made pretty short. Um, it's been overwhelmingly strong, uh, the data out of the US, uh, not least over the past couple of weeks. ISM services bouncing from extreme lows in December, not least when you look at new orders, to almost extreme highs from a month-to-month -month basis. Um, what happened there? Uh, we'll get back to that. Um, and it's the same pattern no matter where you look. Retail sales, relatively bad December, very strong January. Um, inflation, relatively soft December, very strong January. So what is going on here? Um, it's like something happened in between December and January uh, that we were not aware of. And of course, I think there is, I'd say a slight rebound happening beneath the hood of this data. But we also need to look at seasonal adjustments because no matter whether you look at retail sales, ISM services, or the inflation report, we are talking about record high seasonal adjustments in time series history. So even if you look back three, four decades, you cannot find seasonal adjustments to the extent that we've seen in January. And why, why is that the case? Well, first of all, um, seasonal adjustment methodologies uh, are based on most recent months mm -hmm. in prior years. Um, and if we look at January 2022, um, it was the exact timing of the Omicron wave uh, throughout the West. Uh, in Europe, we had complete lockdowns uh, in, in many places. In the US, they were sort of more spread uh, across the countries, these lockdowns. But in any case, something that distorts data uh, by, by miles. Um, if we look back at the winter of 2021, we obviously also had lockdowns, uh, meaning that these mechanical season, seasonal adjustments uh, methodologies, they will be impeded by this. There, there is no doubt that it will influence the seasonal adjustment for the year after. Um, to take a very practical example, um, the seasonal adjustment to um, the component of the retail sales category, um, trying to measure how much we eat and drink out of our homes was at a record high in the time series history of retail sales. Uh, so it basically 
added quite a decent uh, amount to the retail sales report, this seasonal adjustment. And is that fair? Well, it's very tricky to say, but it's at least noteworthy to, um, to pinpoint it, uh, because if it is only a spreadsheet increase to retail sales, then the risk is very large that we will see a massive reversal of it already in February. Because remember, the Omicron lockdowns, they were very short-lived relative to the ones we had in 2021. Uh, for example, in Denmark, where I live, um, the reopening happened already before 1st of February. Uh, so I think there is a, a, a considerable risk that we already in a month from now will discuss why seasonal adjustments pull in the other direction. I think that is a very fair summary, Andreas. I want people to remember the big picture, at least what I got from the January data. I look at macro data normally on a smoothed three-month trending basis. And the reason is exactly to try and avoid a lot of this monthly print noise, right? So there, I would say, even if you smooth out on a three-month basis and you consider the seasonal adjustments, there has been some rebound. It's undeniable. So let's take non-farm payroll, for example. Over 500,000 was the official print. If you take into account the, um, let's say, large seasonal adjustment, the weather, which was much better than average as well in January, and as well the population and the census adjustment, still you end up at over 300,000 jobs being added in January. Then again, what you do is you smooth this number on a three-month basis and you don't focus on one number, but you also look at other indicators of labor, and you end up with having the U.S. labor market adding an, about 150, 170,000 underlying jobs per month. That's not little. That's not little. That's still a decent pace and actually on a trending basis, a little bit of a rebound. So there are other leading indicators as well that seems to be showing some signs of bottoming out. Um, the housing index, for instance, um, or the ISM new orders on a trending basis, as you said. But Andreas, is that not just, or could that not just be the result of the fact that the market basically traded on QE for the last three months? Financial conditions have eased in an incredible way between October and January. So the, re, the, the let's say the, the attempt at bottoming out from the housing market leading indicators, for instance, that could just be the result of mortgage rates dropping 100 basis points in six weeks, which is what happened in the US. Now, look at where, how, where mortgage rates would be in two weeks from now, given that third-year treasury yields are 4%, and ask yourself, are some of these really long-term bottoms in these indicators, or are we looking at a pretty typical late cycle temporary rebound? There's a lot to be discussed there and seasonal adjustments are important, but I think the conclusion should be on a smoothed basis, even after adjustments, numbers have been pretty okay for January, I would say overall. Still, you should ask yourself whether central banks will be happy letting financial conditions loosen at that pace that we have seen between October and January that also led to some of this comeback of animal spirits. I think that that is not the case. One thing I'd like to discuss in the context of these loosening financial conditions is global liquidity, not just dollar liquidity that we've been talking about over and over and over. And uh, we generally get to the view that it's on, on the margin positive when dollar liquidity increases, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation to risk assets, no. obviously. Um, but if we look at global liquidity, uh, there are some interesting trends to watch as well, because January was a month of quite rapid increases to the amount of overall liquidity. Mm -hmm. If we measure it from, say, the six or seven biggest central banks globally. 
the major counter trend here is Japan, uh, but also to a certain extent China. Uh, and if you look at some of the days just surrounding the latest Bank of Japan meeting, they actually outpaced the QE pace of the Federal Reserve from March 2020, when it was a complete mayhem uh, in, in US Treasury markets. Uh, and we need to remember that the Japanese economy is like, what, one-fifth of the US economy in size. So if they outpace the Fed in nominal terms, it's pretty much a big deal. Um, so I wouldn't rule out that you get like certain spillovers from these uh, this Japanese money printing, uh, quote unquote, uh, to to um, markets outside of Japan, since it basically crowds out the local Japanese investor from local markets. It's it's inevitable, um, and obviously, as long as the yield curve control is in place and as long as the pressure remains upwards on on interest rates due to these. Um, seasonal rebounds in in, uh, in economic uh, data points from the West, I suppose Bank of Japan will keep the printer pretty hot. Um, they will simply have to, uh, and they will keep it hot until the new governor is, is in place um, by, by early April. So, I, I mean, from a liquidity perspective, it could be one of the reasons why equities hold up pretty decently despite all of this. There was a period, I think, first four weeks of the year where everybody was plotting this liquidity chart against S&P 500, right? I don't see that plotted anymore. No. And the reason why is that it's not working right now. <laughs> so <laughs> liquidity is, has, has expanded. And, and then, but then people are like, yeah, yeah, but now it's global liquidity. You know, and then you plot global thing and then it works, then it works. So um, <laughs> look, guys, I am a monetary plumbing maniac. Uh, for people that know me, I've done a lot of work on money um, and I like the topic a lot. And I think it is also relatively relevant um, on a medium-term basis, let's say uh, on a three-month basis, to have a look at what bank reserves are doing. If they're going up, they're going down. It's basically money for banks. So the more money for banks available, the more likely they are to oil the financial system. But guys, it's not like a mega bank in Japan has more bank reserves instead of owning uh, Japanese government bonds, now has more bank reserves at the Bank of Japan, and that's going to go and buy some YOLO stocks in the US. That's <laughs> not, it's not how it works. I'm sorry. That's not how it works. So it's a very fascinating topic, and it's true, I think, Andreas, that Japan uh, will be forced to a certain extent mechanically to uh, print bank reserves to keep yields at 50 basis points until, what's the name of the, of the new guy? I still have to memorize, Weda. Weda, yeah. Very Japanese. Until Weda uh, finds out what he wants to do. Uh, from China also, that's interesting what's going on. And maybe let's leave China uh, for the uh, last topic of the mm. of du jour. Why don't we talk about Loretta Mester uh, coming to the wire yesterday and Bullard? Because these guys have been looking at this data, Andreas, and I'm not sure whether they have looked at the seasonally adjusted thing, the smoothed thing. Yeah, of course, probably they have, but they look at this data and they're like, holy crap, this is hot. I need to do something about it, right? And Master is a non-voter. For now, she's yes. a non-voter. For now, because you know, uh, our dear friend Brainer decided to join the other side of the, uh, of the equation, uh, the government, basically. Um, so she needs to be replaced yes. and probably uh, Mester will come up at the end in the mix as a voter. She could. And she yes. just said that she thought about 50 basis point uh, as a hike. She was seriously considering it. And then Bullard comes up. I mean, of course, our friend Bullard has to double up on offish rhetoric. And he goes like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is gone. Let's actually do 50 at the next meeting, shall we? So what do you make of this 50 basis point story? Uh, well, I am... 
I just released released an article this morning calling it bullshit. So <laughs> I guess that's the short, short version of it. I I, I mean. Um, it's it's obviously interesting that Loretta Mester will um, become a voter should the Chicago Fed uh, release Goolsby to be the new VP of the Fed. That is uh, how it will happen mechanically. And I guess the reason why Loretta Mester will be allowed to vote is because the New York Fed um, has no chairman either. Um, so uh, the New York Fed would typically be the first alternate, but never mind. Um, that's just... Um, <laughs> a non-issue for now. Uh, but what, one thing you could say is that the Federal Reserve is now uh, openly adding to job openings <laughs> themselves, so they're, they're not really making their jobs any easier. Um, but um, joking aside, I mean, Bullet, obviously always the odd one out in the FOMC. Um, I don't really think it's worthwhile listening to him, but Messer is is slightly closer to the to the median voice, slightly closer. Um, but she also has a history of dissenting, um, so she's not scared of doing that, at least. While it's been quite interesting to see how consensus-driven the decision-making has been over the past couple of quarters. Uh, so it seems like Powell is in control of, of the decision-making. And is Powell willing to move towards 50 basis points? Well, from, from an incentive structure, um, given how he communicated on the last press conference, it will be quite a dramatic U-turn to, 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 to return to, to a 50 basis point path. Uh, he really created a high bar for himself to move back towards that. Uh, and it seems like he was basically the mastermind behind orchestrating this the inflation has peaked narrative among all the major central yeah. banks yeah. Um, over the course of, of uh, the meetings uh, in, in late January. So, no, I don't buy it. Uh, and and, I, and I, I think as we speak, roughly 29 basis points are priced into the meeting in March. Mm -hmm. um, that is about as hot as it can get for that meeting, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there will be some risk premium pricing above 25 for yes. March. It's just, you know, some insurance basically being spent in case they end up really doing 50 basis points. At this case, also, it doesn't seem to be the base case for me. Um, Powell has been pretty vocal, I think, that for now onwards, what he really wants is to keep Fed funds high for as long as it needs to be. So it's rather about uh, the extent, you highlighted this last time at, the, at, their, at their own um, conference and their own written release, it's rather about not the pace of hikes, but it's now about the extent uh, of time at which the Fed keeps policy this tight. That's what they're focusing on. So I think... Powell will probably be looking to do something like mid-2006, mid-2007, where the hiking cycle was basically halted, but Fed funds were kept there for like 9 to 12 months. I think that's basically what they're willing to achieve because they understand these long and variable lags between Fed funds and um, the real economy and financial markets. So they'll probably be like, you know, this is pretty tight. Let's just leave it pretty tight for a long period of time. And if, if there needs to be another 25 basis points, we'll do it. Maybe another 25 and we'll go to five and a half. But 50 basis point is uh, quite a strong pace. Also from a forward guidance perspective, you do 50 and then what? You do another 50 after? I mean, mm. it starts to become maybe a bit too much even for, uh, for the hawkish taste. But Elf, this higher for longer narrative mm. is um, a tricky battle for the Fed to win 
so even now that we see this repricing of the meetings in March and in May and to a certain extent also the meetings in June and July, we still have an inversion between the set three and the set four contract. So December 23 versus December yeah. 24 in the euro dollar of roughly 140 basis points. Yeah. Um, it hasn't changed much despite this repricing. So oh. I, I, th I think even sh should Powell say on a press conference, there is not a snowball chance in hell that we will cut interest rates over the next two years. He will not be able to uninvert the curve with such no. communication. The only no thing one will trust it. The only thing that uninverts December 23, December 24 curve, so that basically reprices these cuts from 140 to no cuts next year, is data, is inflation data, is super strong growth data that suggests that not only we are not close to a recession, we are not even close to a soft landing. We're actually pumping on all cylinders on the U.S. economy and will just keep going, which means effectively that the economy can run at trend or above trend growth with rates at 5.5%. That's what it means. And um, the market hasn't priced that, Andreas, not nearly. What the market has priced that has basically shifted the, the timing of a soft landing about six months later. That's what the market is doing. It's basically all the cuts that were priced between June and December have been somehow parallel shifted in time back into 2024 and a little bit later as well. So it's now we have a higher ending point for 23, but roughly the same amount of cuts that were priced in for 24. That we are basically shifting in time. We haven't shifted regime. Also, you know, inflation swaps are still pricing inflation to be below 3% by year end. So if you really think that we are in higher for longer, there are a bazillion trades out there. Like take two fives in the US and completely uninvert them. Like, you know, make sure that anything that is priced as a cut in 2024, you can trade against it because higher for longer means that you're going to keep rates at 5% at least for a prolonged period of time. That's years to come. That's not priced in. We have literally just shifted the soft landing six months later. That's what we're pricing in at the moment. Did you just suggest a, suggest a positive carry trade there? No, 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 no. Please, please, please. No, no, no. no. Uh, but the, um, actually, I have a theory for which um, if you postpone a soft landing, so let's, let's put it like this. The near-term recessionary tail risk has been completely priced away, almost completely. So forget about the near-term recession being priced away. Soft landing, short term, also now being delayed, right? So what you're doing is you're basically pricing tighter policy for longer, longer as in the next six months at least. But does a delay soft landing actually means a worse economic downturn later? So if we now delay a soft landing and we keep policy tighter for longer, let's, let's talk about mortgage rates. So instead of allowing mortgage rates to come down to the 6% area or below, Andreas, you're going to force them back to 7% for another three quarters, something like that. Does that not increase the risk that the housing market will see some pretty serious downturn, for example? Should, should be the case. Um, and, I mean, currently we, we're still stuck in this discussion on when lags will actually ultimately hit the economy from these interest rate hikes uh, that were pretty rapid last year. Um, and I mean, I still struggle to find a forward-looking indicator on GDP growth, say six, nine months ahead, that does not look extremely vulnerable. Um, 
And of course, if, if you resurface this 50 basis point chatter and all that stuff, it, it will only increase the risk that it, it is a Fed overdoing things, um, ultimately. So I've said it in a while, I, I, and, I, and I still have that view. Uh, it's very far from being um, anywhere near a consensus or anywhere near anything that would be accepted politically. But I think they've done enough. I would I would sincerely say that well, I think they've done enough to bring the economy down. But as you see. as you correctly pointed out, the only thing that matters now is data, yeah. is labor market data and inflation data. That's all that matters to define really if we really need to reprice higher for longer sustainably because we haven't done so. We have just postponed the soft landing now in the repricing, or. Actually, we need to assume that the damage they have done, Andreas, will unfold in six to nine months, and we need to start pricing in a recessionary market in six to nine months ahead. That's where we stand now. And uh, I have a question for you, actually, because you made, you made me notice this before the show. So you have now a dollar that has performed very well over the week and two weeks basis. You have real interest rates going up. Long-dated forward real yields in the U.S. are above 100 basis points. That's not a joke. You have nominal interest rates going up rapidly. Also, the back end, 30-year treasury is almost 4%. And still, you're having pretty resilient, super high beta, unprofitable tech uh, stocks. Uh, meme stocks are rallying. Companies deliver terrible earnings, and the day after, they pump 20%. Uh, any comments on that? Uh, buy Bitcoin, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Bitcoin is an instrument. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I, I, that's never fun. But uh, I, I, Elf, it makes sense to the extent that this current resurfacing of inflation trends is much more wage driven than it is driven by these supply related shocks from two thousand and. 21 and 22, then it could make to a certain extent a bit of sense. Uh, I, I've, I've said it uh, over and over this week that I, th I, I think the re-acceleration that we see in inflation now is a bit different to what we've seen uh, in, in 2021 uh, and 22, since it, is, it has clearer links to wage formation now. Uh, and therefore, it is not necessarily as bad for the average consumer that inflation is resurfacing. So I guess you could use that as an excuse to buy consumer discretionary stocks, for example. Uh, and I think that is exa exactly the excuse that the serious part of the market is using. Um, guys buying uh, shit coins and stuff like that, they, they, they never need an excuse outside of, um, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> telling so you to stay poor. You heard Steno is a Tesla boy because Tesla represents a decent portion of the consumer discretionary basket, if I'm not mistaken. I I I um I actually don't drive Tesla. <laughs> ah, there you go. There yeah. you go. I, I don't, uh, uh, and I don't plan on doing so. Um, but I I I have to admit I need to have um, an EV simply due to the fact that I live in a city where you cannot find a parking spot if it's not an EV. Uh, so, so it's it's just necessary. <laughs> Uh, Andres, let me bore people with uh, a theory I have on this rally. So 
The theory is driven by the fact that in October last year, uh, Powell seemed to be Volcker. Uh, so there was a lot of tightening of financial conditions being priced and home builders were hitting the floor and together with it unprofitable tech and all that highly levered stuff, right? And then all of a sudden, you get the first disinflationary inflation prints, right? And uh, the market jumps on it and Powell doesn't deny them. So Powell says, yeah, okay, guys, you can go ahead and loosen financial conditions a bit. Basically, green light for you to go ahead. The most important thing is that implied vol, both in the equity and in the bond market, starts declining rapidly. And a lot of people at the same time are really short this unprofitable tech, real estate, and all of that, right? So the mechanical flows coming from the leveraged industry, risk parity, CTAs, all these guys, right? They get a signal when implied volatility comes down, they can take more risk. They can buy more stocks in general, right? So they buy stocks. A mechanical flow of that size, because implied vol came down rapidly, has a disproportionate effect on smaller sectors that are very short, very shorted, let's say. So I'm talking about unprofitable tech. I'm talking about meme retail stuff. It's relatively small in market cap, and it's very shorted. So if you have mechanical flows actually buying the equity market in general, it disproportionately weights on this. And the price action shows it, right? So if you look at the year-to-date returns, it was a very, very cool chart from Goldman. They regressed, Andreas, year-to-date returns against 2022 returns per sectors. And so the worst outperformer, the worst underperformer of 2022 are the best outperformer of 2023. So this seems to be a reflexive rally, um, a uh, short squeeze to a certain extent, a very large one, driven by the fact that implied vol came down and the levered fund could therefore buy stocks. And the most shorted sectors were the one that disproportionately benefited from this mechanical flow. Um, Actually, it might make sense coupled with the fact that if you look at um, the amount of short covering that went on from hedge funds into the tech sector has been really large in a short period of time. It goes again to show the same story. If you're short something, you have risk budgets, you have stop losses, you have to keep your job as a hedge fund a portfolio manager, and these mechanical flows are actually rising the tide, you're going to be forced to stop out and you're going to actually develop an avalanche of further buying on exactly the same names, which are very squeezed, very small in market cap, and therefore they tend to, they tend to rally more and react more disproportionately. Elf, in relation to that, we, we got the latest monthly survey from Bank of America this week, uh, surveying fund managers on their positioning. Um, I'm curious about a couple of things. Uh, first of all, it still looks very bearish, to be honest, this survey. Um, extreme underweight in equities relative to benchmarks. Um, bond, bonds are overweighted uh, massively uh, still, at least in this survey. I, I'm not sure I really buy that the overweight in, in, in bonds is that material. But in any case, if you look at sectors, um, tech is still extremely underweight. Consumer discretionary is still underweight, uh, while some of the defensive sectors such as staples and healthcare remain on overweight. Right? Um, that is to be a sign that the sort of more slow-moving part of the asset management industry has not reacted to this to any major extent, at least if they tell the truth in this survey. So one, have you ever been part of this survey? That could, could be interesting to hear your uh, thoughts on it. And, yes, and, actually, yes. Yes, I thought so. And secondly, do you think it's a decently representative survey of actual positioning? 
Shall I tell you how I used to reply to this survey? <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, By Nasdaq. <laughs> it was like, uh, this, this, that, that. No, no, I'm joking, I'm joking. But um, I think it, to a certain extent, could be representative of a certain part of the market, but um, I don't know. I take it with a pinch of salt and the rest. So what, what's interesting is looking at flows, like hard data on flows coming into certain jurisdictions. Bank of America does a good job tracking those, like how, how many flows are coming on a four-week rolling basis in a certain uh, basket of products. That's interesting. This is real money flowing in, right? Survey respondents on their positioning in their books. Eh, I don't know. I, I don't know. Anyway, Andres, shall we talk about some trade ideas? Yields on T-bills are surging and they are now the highest seen in decades. If you want to invest in this uncertain environment, there is now an easy alternative that yields a decent return. Public.com has introduced a treasury account product, which as we speak, yields close to 5%. It's easy and flexible to park your cash in this product. You can go to public.com slash macro trading floor if you want to check it out and find the link below in the show notes. I wanted to, to briefly touch upon one topic before we go to sure. the uh, actual ideas. And um, that is one of the sectors not performing this year. Uh, mm. It was the darling of 2022, the energy stocks and oh, yeah. also energy commodities to a certain extent. Um, I noted this week, again, rising inventories in the U.S. on crude. Um, obviously, it is that um, time of the year where you expect uh, a seasonal uptick in crude due to um, refineries uh, being under maintenance and stuff like that. But it is still a much bigger increase than you would seasonally expect uh, for crude inventories in the U.S. And it comes, I think... 24 hours after the Biden administration deciding to release even more fuel from the SPR. Uh, I guess that was essentially a response to, to Russia uh, cutting supply um, the week prior. Uh, so so it, I, I would actually argue right now that by the Biden administration or the US is back in the driver's seat of, of, of pricing of energy. Uh, and they wanted to send a firm signal to Russia, go ahead and cut, we'll just release some more. It, 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 it doesn't matter uh, for, for your pricing to do it. Uh, and if we look at spreads between uh, Brent and um, uh, Ural um, oil, um, Russia is not on top of things right now. Uh, and they didn't really manage to move the needle in any significant way with this message. Uh, so I remain clearly on energy underweight, despite these green shoots happening in the economy, I can say that. So now let me tell you um, something. I think that, generally speaking, treasuries north of 4% in nominal terms um, are a decent add for a long-term investor in their portfolio. Now, the thing is, of course, one needs to be patient. Uh, the curve could disinvert a little bit. Um, the array of relatively strongly that could continue for a couple of months more. Don't forget the Chinese reopening, which, as you told me before, and I agree, hasn't really shown up in any meaningful data yet. So this tailwind could still be coming to support the nominal growth story. Um, but honestly, if you look a little bit down the road, unless you expect that something has really changed in our economy and we can now handle 
5% risk-free rates and deliver trend growth with it. While for 10 years before the pandemic, we had 0% interest rate and we could barely deliver any growth and any inflation. Unless you think things have materially changed, 4% or north of 4% treasury yields on a 10-year basis are, I think, a decent thing to look at. I haven't added them yet, by disclosure, by the way, but I am you know, looking at the screen and I remember us saying in October, wow, that was a great moment to buy because you know, we were round about the same levels, right? So now we are four months later, five months later, these levels are approaching again, and I think it's fair to look at them and assess if they deserve a spot in a long-term portfolio again. Mm. So let me add my idea of the week. Uh, and I will, I think, make a decent attempt of scaring away all listeners uh, when I start talking now. Of, um, let me first of all disclaim, I bought Palladium after I talked about that idea. It was an absolutely abysmal timing. So spit at me, ridicule me, whatever. I took my stop loss. That the is Danish, what happens from Tim. The, the from Danish time to Kramer. Time. The Danish Kramer hits again. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let me talk about uh, something related to the energy story, uh, namely the Norwegian krona, and that is why I warned you that everyone will turn up now. Uh, but it's actually a very interesting technical story. This one uh, surrounding the Norwegian krona, because the Norwegian state. Uh, gets a lot of taxes from natural gas and um, petroleum, uh, oil, etc. Uh, and what they do when they receive these taxes in US dollars is that they at least partially transfer them to the budget. Um, and what happened during a period of time in, in between um, 2015 and, and 2020 roughly was that they partly funded the Norwegian budget with these taxes, uh, which meant that they uh, actually bought back Norwegian kroners and sold US dollars from these tax money that they received to fund the budget. Over the course of 2022, due to these extreme spike in oil prices, but not least in natural gas prices, they are the most important here uh, since the move was so big, uh, they reversed the course and started um, uh, reversing the FX policy, selling Norwegian kroners every day, uh, buying uh, US dollars to match the flows from uh, from these uh, tax payments uh, because they were so extreme. And now we've seen a complete meltdown in the price of natural gas and they haven't adjusted the pace to the extent needed to match that. Um, when natural gas prices are as low as they are now, I'd say that we should expect Norwich's bank to approach zero, so a roughly neutral FX purchase policy within a time frame of one or two months from now. Um, it's at least getting close to, to such a level. Uh, and currently they are selling 1.9 billion Norwegian kroners every day, and it's way too much. So this is a mechanical flow not matching the tax flows. Uh, and therefore I, I consider the time lag between what, happened in, what happens in energy markets until the Norwegian central bank actually gets the not to change course on their FX purchase policy. Quite interesting. And I think the Norwegian Krona will take another beating due to it. I would like to add something smart to this. I have no idea what you're talking about, but you are the Nordics man. And, uh, you, you, you nodded all the way through this <laughs> as if you knew. But, uh, it's a typical thing that you nod and you're like, wow, this sounds very smart. Holy crap, Norwegian Krona, what's that? I'm a Southern Italian guy. That's very far away from me. But actually the technical story here has makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. It could actually work. 
Yeah. Andreas, I think, uh, oh, you want to say something else? Go ahead. Go, go, bore people more. Go, go, go. <laughs> Maybe I should bring an idea to the table. Um, oh, okay. That is, sure. is not related uh, to the small oil field just north of where I live. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I honestly think, Elf, that um, the risk reward uh, is still okay in consumer discretionaries. Um, and I've been saying it for um, the, the good part of, of, of 2023, thank, thankfully. Uh, so I, I stay long uh, consumer discretionary based on the notion that this is a different type of inflation relative to the one that we experienced last year. And if this is an inflation driven by wage increases, um, among blue-collar workers, then I would actually say that it is a decent chance uh, for these consumer discretionary stocks to deliver positively over the next, say, couple of months. And they can also outpace expectations from an earnings perspective, uh, since they are not particularly upbeat either. Yeah. So that sure. would be my final take and probably a, a, a trade that is easier to implement for most of you out there. <laughs> yes. If you, if you expect the delay uh, to continue being priced in into any soft landing or a recession, then definitely um, the cyclical growth re-rating story for the next quarter or so could be uh, feeding into consumer discretionary. Why not? Yeah. And Elf, if, if you look at cyclicals relative to defensives in Europe, and in the U.S., yeah. it seems like there is a big catch-up potential in U.S. cyclical yeah. stocks. Truth um, to be said, in, in Europe, the catch-up has been large again because in October last year, we had a magazine cover saying that Europe was dead, basically. Yes. Remember the blackout magazine cover, like Germany is not going to have money to turn the lights on this, this, this winter? Yeah, okay. That's the moment when cyclicals were probably the most sold in history in Europe, so the rebound has also been very large. But yeah, you're right. Cyclicals have outperformed defensives in the U.S. as well, but not not in an extreme fashion uh, yet. It could get even more aggressive. Anyway, mate, um, shall That's we cool remind people where do they <laughs> find more of your good trades and bad trades? I mean, we all make mistakes at, this, at the same day, but also your research. Where do they find that? Yeah. If you want to find more contrarian signals, you can go to stenoresearch.com to know what not to do. <laughs> and uh, you find my work on macro, monetary, markets, trade ideas, portfolios at themacrocompass.com. As always, guys, thanks for listening. I, I was curious before I go, actually, Andres, if I would ask people listening to this podcast or episode right now at minute 38 of us really bothering their Sunday or Monday, how many people are still online at this moment, 38? Do you think people are still listening to us or are we talking to ourselves? That's a good question. Uh, I, I I would suppose that we lost 99% of the listeners when I started talking about Norway. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's, but, do, uh, let's actually plan an experiment next time. But okay, I have something in mind. But yeah, please don't but, talk about Norway at minute 33. Otherwise, you're going to ruin my experiment. Okay? <laughs> Maybe I should entertain about why I consider them to be the Qatar of Scandinavia next week. But that would be probably be more entertaining than talking about the Norwegian Corona. Pretty let's much. leave it there. <laughs> All right, guys, talk again next Sunday.